Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our online audiences and our live stream audience, and I hope to, um, you know, give you a much better uh, uh, perspective about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Berlin Crisis that preceded it with uh, Ted Voorhees. But I'd also like to welcome our audience that watches later. Um, This is part of the Commonwealth Club's online programs, which we started in March when the crisis uh, closed down our our, our building where we had live audiences for our programs. Um, And we have done dozens and dozens of programs since then. And uh, they're all available on our website, www.commonwealthclub.org. And they're also on our YouTube and Facebook channels. So um, tonight we're speaking with Ted Voorhees, uh, who has written a book on the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, The Guns of October, I think, uh, for for two Octobers. Um, And Ted, first of all, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. And thanks a lot for, uh, you know, joining us online this way. Thank you, uh, George. It's my pleasure, of course. I just wish I was uh, out there in San Francisco face-to-face with your wonderful audience. Yeah, well, we, we uh, are counting on everybody listening, and we're having a, a great time, by the way, audience. Thank you for very much for, for staying attention, attentive to the programs that we're putting on. We actually have a larger audience now than we had before live. So um, the first question I wanted to ask you is, uh, I, I know you're, you're a, a lawyer at a very big firm in D.C., and you have uh, now written a very detailed and uh, well-researched book, which must have taken a lot of time. So one, how did you uh, carve out the time for it? And how long did, did, did that take you? And, and two, how did you get so interested in the Cuban Missile Crisis that you went in and, and looked at all the records? And, and the, so I talk about that because uh, the research was really great. Well, thanks, George. Uh, as far as how long it took me, uh, basically it took me seven years. I started working on this uh, in uh, 2013. I pretty much finished the book by uh, 2019, but then I had to uh, find a publisher. That took a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's the time frame. As far as I, you know, why I got into this, uh, I, I'll, let me take a minute on that. Uh, I was 13 years old in uh, 1960, October 62. October mm-hmm. 62, 13 years old. And I, I, by the way, I know a couple of uh, 13 year olds are watching this program. So uh, <laughs> the new generation is, uh, is getting interested. But I was 13 and I was very interested as a, as a boy, I was interested in uh, World War II and the Cold War. Both my parents had been in uh, the intelligence services during uh, World War II. And so I was, I was totally interested. And so when the, uh, when the Checkpoint Charlie event occurred, and then much more so when the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred a year later in 62, I was, I was really plugged in. I, I followed it uh, closely. I grew up in Philadelphia, and uh, I was aware, though I had, had not heard the, the term DEFCON 2, and we may talk mm-hmm. about that, uh, I had... I had seen in the newspaper that uh, strategic bombers of the U.S. Air Force were landing at Philadelphia International Airport, a civilian airport. That mm-hmm. was very interesting to me, even though I was 13. Mm-hmm. When I was in college, uh, I had the good fortune to uh, study for, for one um, a course under Graham Allison, who at the time was just a, a youngish uh, associate professor. And when we started working together, he handed me a manuscript of what became Essence of Decision and told me to read it. Mm-hmm. And I read it, and I I was just uh, flabbergasted by what an excellent piece of thinking that was. And I thought mm-hmm. to myself, this is why I'm in college here. I, I This kind of work, I like. Okay, mm-hmm. then I went off and became a lawyer, and I practiced law for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm very glad I did. But uh, during that time, I kept reading. I was very interested in Cold War and historical studies, et cetera. I kept up on it. And just to, to wrap up on this long answer, I, uh, I noticed that the story of the Cuban Missile Crisis kept changing. Mm-hmm. First, most importantly, because the tapes became available in the 1990s, uh, the President Kennedy's secret tapes of his ex-con. 
But then when the uh, Soviet Kremlin archives began, began to become available, the story changed again. And I thought to myself, there's more here. And so I dug in. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of the fascinating things about your book is that you have, you're using access to the uh, Russian archives as well. And you really, the comparison between the two sides is very interesting. We'll get into that a little bit later. Um, yeah. But one thing I'd like to talk about um, is that those tapes, the JFK tapes. So uh, you say, I think, that he had the system installed. That's the same system that Nixon used uh, that got him in trouble, right? Uh, yeah. so, so, so Kennedy got back at Nixon in yet another way. <laughs> but but, uh, but uh, is that correct? Is that the, he installed a, a taping system, used it some of the time, but not all the time? You mentioned that sometimes it was on, sometimes it was off. Yes. Say a little it's, bit about that system for those who aren't aware of that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Kennedy had the, uh, the, the tapes installed in the Oval Office and in uh, meeting rooms where uh, uh, his, his uh, visitors would come in for meetings. Uh, they were triggered by a button uh, that he had under his desk so he could click it on and click it off and no nobody other than him and Bobby uh, were aware of those tapes. Mm -hmm. And I, I, and they were reel-to-reel uh, -reel tapes down in the basement of the White House. Mm -hmm. And so when people listen to them even today, you can hear a lot of, you know, old 1960s taping noise, like click, mm -hmm. click, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. Old, old tech stuff. And uh, he taped what he wanted to tape. He turned the tape off when he wanted to turn it off. But there were a couple of occasions when the tape remained on, when it was clear that he didn't know it was still on. And there was, mm -hmm. there was one important uh, instance of that in, that I discuss in the book. Yeah, uh, you, I, I was just going to ask you, I, I don't think that he and Bobby really wanted their private conversation one time to be uh, taped, but it was. They, they, well, they, they, did, I, they were clearly not aware that it was being taped, but they weren't worried because I don't think uh, the president ever thought that the tapes would be available except as he made them available. Okay. Well, uh, in your book, one of the things that you, you talk about, of course, is the Bobby Kennedy's book, 13 Days which uh, is one of the more famous versions of what happened and, and paints an extremely heroic picture of, of how the Americans uh, uh, outsmarted uh, the, the uh, nefarious communists uh, in Russia. And, and you paint a very, very different picture. And you also mentioned that Bobby just said, well, of course, uh, I put it that way because I'm going to run for office. So, right. <laughs> so it was clearly, uh, you know, the log cabin story version uh, of, of, uh, of, of a politician. Uh, that was fascinating, and I think uh, everybody who, who has read 13 Days and has uh, gotten, you know, an impression of what happened during the, the Cuban Missile Crisis should definitely read Ted's book and find out what really happened. <laughs> so, so, so uh, it's just a very interesting, you know, we'll, we'll finish up with all the different players and, and what they did uh, wrong, basically. But let's start with the story now, because this is, uh, for, for those of you who are, are much younger listening in, you know, for anybody who was seven to eight or nine years old or so in 1962 or older, uh, this was such a huge thing because there were nuclear drills, the nuclear war drills, people, you know, you, all the different schools put on these things. People were talking about everybody having to build shelters in the ground, which wouldn't have done much good, you know, and certainly the drills at school wouldn't do, but it certainly scared the heck out of people. And, um, you know, we talk about the fears from the COVID crisis and, and the fears from 9-11 and how, how influential they are. But I don't think they quite matched the, the, the imminence of nuclear war that was going to kill 50 million people, um, you know, overnight. So, so uh, say a little bit about uh, that, that it was a po political, that was more political than real. When we, we can, you can frame the whole thing that way. But you, you contend that there really wasn't that much risk of nuclear war at that time. Yeah, that's probably the most uh, unorthodox of my uh, views in my book, most yeah. uh, uh, controversial perhaps, and I spend quite a bit of time uh, at the middle and the end explaining why I believe that is so. Mm -hmm. It's hard to uh, explain in a sense to people who were there 
because, and I was 13 and, you know, uh, I, 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 many people have stories uh, who lived at that time about uh, fear uh, of the unknown. And that the, the, the reason fear was so rampant was because it was so uh, uh, intensely unknown. People, mm-hmm. normal people going about their daily uh, lives who are being told about, uh, uh, you know, children having to duck under their desks and and reading the newspapers and not knowing what was going on or what was about to happen and only imagining how awful it might be were, of course, terribly frightened. Uh, and even the... Um, people in the White House who were uh, deliberating in the XCOM, and we'll talk about that, the Kennedy's mm-hmm. advisors, uh, they weren't sure about how this was going to come out. But uh, what I argue and what I tried to demonstrate from the evidence is that the two people who were actually in, in control of what was happening and we can talk about that and what that means, were Kennedy Mm. and Khrushchev. And for their different reasons, both of them were absolutely determined not only not to have a war, not only not to push triggers of nuclear weapons, but they were determined not to even have the soldiers at the lowest levels of their military estates pulling the triggers of pistols at Mm. one another. And they took many, many steps to assure that there would not be a, uh, uh, you know, even an innocent uh, triggering of what might be an escalatory uh, situation. Yeah, you made that very clear. And it's, uh, it's very interesting that we had a, a situation where the two uh, major leaders really were um, so influential in the decision that, that Khrushchev if it had been a couple of years earlier, he might have just been establishing his power, but he was establishing his power at the time. Um, so you you call this a double game that they were uh, out to deceive each other and 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 uh, trying to get their advantage over each other in this kind of chess game between Khrushchev and JFK. Um, and it's it's interesting because a, a large part of what you do is it might be considered like a legal distinction, but it was between deception and a flat out lie. And, and you, you, you make the, the distinction in how important it was to, that it wasn't. And in the end, you conclude that the Americans lied about the Russians having lied. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that the Russians hadn't had a flat-out lie. They'd been deceptive, but they hadn't flat-out lied. And the Americans ended up lying flat-out about that you know, difference. But, uh, but set the, let's set the stage before we go to the missile uh, stage and, and, and go back to, to Cuba. Let's set the stage, which you did so nicely about in, in your first chapter about Berlin and the Berlin uh, checkpoint uh, Charlie uh, issue, and how that played out, and you know it, it presents and how it was a dry run for Cuba. You did a great job on that. So. Okay, so we turn the clock back to uh, August of 1961, and that's when uh, the uh, the Soviets and the East Germans built the Berlin Wall. August 15, 1961. They did it because they were seeing a tremendous exodus of uh, East Germans across the border to the West. Many, many of them through Berlin. And it was embarrassing to the, uh, the Soviet system. It was, and it was also a brain drain, which was not good for East Germany. So they built the wall. It was a terrible trauma for Berliners. And it was, a, and it was frightening for Europeans and they looked to the President of the United States, what are we going to do about this? And Kennedy basically was silent for more than a month. He, he, didn't get, he, he didn't react. In fact, he believed, and he said it in a very quotable quip, a wall is a hell of a lot better than a war. Mm-hmm. He felt that the Russians needed that wall, and he didn't want to fight them over it. So the wall went up. Now, there were checkpoints across the wall, and one of them, the most famous one, was Checkpoint Charlie. And uh, there were very uh, technical bureaucratic protocols of who from the west of Berlin could go through Checkpoint Charlie to the east, Mm -hmm. and what kind of uh, uh, credentials did they need to show. That led to a dispute 
And the, one of the American uh, embassy officials and his wife were going through the, the wall and uh, they wanted to go to the theater. And they didn't want to show their credentials to the East German guards. So mm -hmm. they basically bowled their way through. I, I'm, I'm probably giving too long a story here. No, no, this is great. Okay. <laughs> uh, so they bowled their way through on day one. Then they tried to do it again on day two. They got some more flack from the East German border guards called Vopos. And then they got a escort of GIs in a Jeep who escorted mm -hmm. them the next time they wanted to go through. And that intimidated these Germans. Uh, but they, uh, the, the controversy continued, and soon there was a tank, an American tank, that lined up at the border as this guy was going through uh, to, to go to the theater in, in East Berlin. Well, when the tank arrived- <laughs> must have really wanted to go to the theater. But it was it was a it was a show of yeah. who's in charge. Yes. I uh, when the American tank showed up, a Russian tank showed up on the other side, and there was this big tank standoff. It went right. It, you know, then it became serious. People got afraid. Mm -hmm. They thought, oh, is a war breaking out here in the middle of Berlin? Mm -hmm. And both Kennedy and Khrushchev became personally involved. This was a small dry run for the Cuban Missile Crisis because the way they resolved that, and they resolved it overnight, they literally resolved it with some phone calls through an intermediary who they both trusted, who was a GRU Soviet military intelligence spy living in Washington named Georgi Bolshakov. Bobby Kennedy called Georgi and said, here's what's gonna happen and the, the deal was settled. The trouble is, Bobby didn't write down what the deal was. There were no notes taken of the deal on the US mm. side. The only reason we know what happened, and we only know a little bit, is because the Russians wrote down what the deal was. <laughs> and those <laughs> that eventually came out. But in any event, the essence of it was, look, We'll stop our guys from going through your checkpoints and, and causing trouble for the Vopos. You take your tanks out first. Mm -hmm. If you do that, we'll start taking our tanks out. So you've got to take the first step. But mm -hmm. in exchange for that, we'll stop harassing you. Mm -hmm. So that was a template because you have Georgi Bolshakov, who was the intermediary in the Cuban Missile Crisis, you have the deal. Oh, and last point, got to keep it secret. This is a deal just between us, right. no publicity. And your tank's got to leave first. So you, you, you have to swallow the, the, the bad PR. You, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. One of the interesting parts about that is that the Kennedys trusted this uh, spy from the yes. Soviet Union. Yes. And, and he, again, was used during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you even said that there were meetings uh, that Jack had with him and Bobby had with him where there was no translator um, that, that he obviously spoke English, but they trusted him to translate both sides. So, so why? That, that seems pretty extreme. It's very no, no, it's, it's not that extreme. They trusted oh. him. They trusted him, Georgi Bolshakov, to deliver their message uh -huh. to Khrushchev. They didn't, they, you know, I, I don't want to push this too far. And, uh, and they were, I think they were justified in trusting him. He was, uh, you know, an intelligence agent for the Soviets, yes. Yeah. But he could get into a lot of trouble if he mischaracterized what the president was trying to say to the mm -hmm. premier. Okay. So, yeah. Okay, that's good. That's good background for, for going uh, on, on to Cuba. So now we're... All kinds of things happen in the next year, um, including uh, some threats. So I want to give that background. Before the Cuban Missile Crisis, there's all this talk about nuclear weapons. And, and John Kennedy had, had partially uh, won the election, or at least had talked a lot about during the campaign, about the missile gap that, that, uh, that the U.S. was behind. Of course, when he got into the office, he found out what. And, and then uh, they, they talked about it. So why don't you say how big the missile gap actually was. <laughs> okay. I mean, this is, this is sort of, again, it's a little hard to believe, uh, mm. but uh, intelligence has gotten a lot better. Uh, intelligence uh, collection has gotten a lot better in the modern era than it was in the 50s and 60s. 
But in the late 1950s, uh, the, the Soviets were the first to uh, develop an intercontinentally capable ballistic missile. That's what they mm -hmm. fired off to send their, their satellites into orbit. They, they got there before we did. And Khrushchev started boasting in the late 50s that he had a lot of missiles and a lot of warheads and uh, they were just way ahead of the US. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't ab absolutely know for sure whether he was boasting or whether it was true. But by 19, by, by the end of Eisenhower, you know, 59, 60, we knew that it was pure boast. Mm -hmm. We also knew by that time that we were catching up. And in fact, we were going ahead of the, of the Soviets on, uh, on missiles and, and other delivery systems, let's say. So by the time Kennedy, oh, and, 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 and of course, Kennedy was, was criticizing Eisenhower and Nixon, his mm -hmm. predecessors, for allowing this missile gap to occur and the Soviets to get ahead of us. Right. Kennedy didn't know that, he just didn't know that he was wrong about that. And he made hay out of it in the campaign and it was very successful. So as soon as he became president and McNamara, you know, became Secretary of Defense, they found out, oh, actually, we're way ahead of the Soviets on this. <laughs> and uh, Kennedy, uh, he knew that, but he, he, he was concerned that the Russians didn't, knew that we knew, didn't know that we knew. It was important mm -hmm. to him that they know that we knew that we were way ahead of them for mm -hmm. a variety of reasons, which I explain in the book. So in late 1961, he uh, commissioned the, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Gil, Roswell Gilpatrick, gave a speech, very public, in uh, late 61, where he said, here's what we've got. We have got so much more than the Soviets have mm -hmm. that if they were to attack us suddenly, our counterattack would absolutely demolish them. We're, we're mm -hmm. that big. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, in fact, as historians have looked back and, 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 and the government looked back, you know, from a few years after that, it, it's pretty clear that we had about between a 16 and a 20 to one advantage over the mm -hmm. Soviets in nuclear weapon weapons that could actually be used to hit the, the other side. So we mm -hmm. had a huge advantage. Now, here's the problem. Knowing that advantage and having described this advantage to some extent in this Gilpatrick talk, Kennedy, the president, and his brother, the attorney general, who was acting like the president's top foreign policy advisor, mm. began to do a little bit of their own boasting. Mm -hmm. And between, no, between October of 61 and July of 62, they dropped hints on at least six occasions that the U.S. might be thinking about a first strike against the Soviet Union in some circumstances undescribed. Mm -hmm. Khrushchev heard all of these hints mm -hmm. and they antagonized him, they angered him, and they frightened him. And those clearly unmistakably led to his thinking he needed to do something and that doing something turned out to be putting intermediate missiles and medium range missiles in Cuba. It's, it's interesting. There's a, there's a technical part of your, your, your version of the story that I, I found very interesting, which was that the Soviet Union only had four real launching sites um, and they didn't have the submarines yet at the time, uh, which could launch uh, missiles. And they had liquid rockets, or liquid fuel rockets, I should say, not liquid rockets. And, um, and we'll get back to the missiles that we had in Turkey a little bit later, but the missiles in Turkey that we had were already obsolete because, from the United States' point of view, because they were also liquid fuel. And, and uh, as you say, it, it took a couple of hours to get them ready to launch. So the only thing that they were useful for was for a first strike. They weren't really useful as coming back. So they, that looked bad that they, we had only for first strike uh, missiles in, in, in uh, Turkey from the Russian viewpoint. Um, all, all very interesting and everybody, each side making their decisions. But it's very interesting that, that the Kennedys were boasting about this first strike capacity 
um, at the same time that they were letting everybody be afraid that well, there was a missile gap um, and that we were in trouble and that the population should be afraid, uh, the American population should be afraid of a nuclear war. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a double game on, on, on the citizens as well. So you, that, that, that brings us up to uh, the lead into Cuba. Now, what I found very interesting uh, was how much domestic politics played a role in how Kennedy went about dealing with the fact. In fact, that he didn't even want to know for a while that what was going on in Cuba. So why don't you lay out up to October, you know, uh, what, what was going on during the summer uh, as it led up to the crisis, as the Soviet Union was putting things in and we started to find out what they were doing. Okay, so we're now in uh, July of 1962, uh, three or four months before the Cuban Missile Crisis became a crisis. So it's July. And the, uh, the NSA and the CIA began to detect a very significant upsurge in Soviet cargo ships en route to Cuba. And they pretty quickly concluded that they were carrying uh, military equipment because these were cargo ships that were, uh, so we say, sailing high in the water. <laughs> so they were they were not carrying grain, lumber, mm -hmm. heavy stuff in their holds. They were carrying uh, relatively lighter material. So it's pretty clear it was military. Um, the same time, uh, the U.S. ambassador to uh, Russia to to the Soviet Union, uh, Llewellyn Thompson, was leaving his post. He was having uh, goodbye meetings with Khrushchev. They were they they were. They respected each other. They, they were serious meetings, uh, goodbye meetings. And also, uh, Khrushchev wanted Thompson to carry some messages privately to the president. And on July 25, the first message that uh, Thompson was given, July 25, was from uh, Khrushchev saying, uh, in not in effect, in these words, pretty much, uh, I, I'd like to, uh, I, I don't want to cause trouble for the president. In fact, I would like to help him. Mm -hmm. Would it be better for our, uh, for our uh, dispute over Berlin to be postponed until the president's midterm elections? Mm -hmm. That was Khrushchev's message to, to Kennedy. Then the, the uh, and then uh, uh, Bolshakov then came back into the scene. Mm -hmm. And that was July 25 and 26. On July 31, Bolshakov has a meeting in the White House with the president and with Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general, just the three of them. No notes taken on the U.S. side. And, oh, oh, and I'm sorry, there's one other. I, I, after the, uh, I want to help him, you know, should we postpone our, our problems until after the midterm elections, which right. we're going to be on November 6th, by the way. The second message was, uh, the next day, Khrushchev said, there's one thing the president can do that will, uh, will I, I, really, I really need him to do this. American planes are harassing Soviet ships on the open ocean <laughs> it's it's a it's a violation of international rules it's piratical it's uh you should it, uh, we can't put up with this the president should stop doing this okay those two messages went through Llewellyn Thompson to, to, to Kennedy so we're now July 31 Bolshakov is in the White House meeting privately with Kennedy and and Bobby and uh, the president delivers his answer. His answer is, um, I am ordering the, uh, that close-in surveillance of your ships stopped immediately. In exchange, I want you to put off any further tensions on Berlin. Put that, those tensions on ice until after the midterm elections in the United States on November 6th. So that let's explain. Let's explain his domestic political problem and why those midterm elections were so 
crystal because yeah. he had a, he had a majority, a Democratic majority in both the Senate and the House. But and people aren't familiar, and some people may not be familiar with this. A lot of those Democrats were Dixiecrats. Right, exactly. <laughs> not not but, too reliable. Yeah. Yes, they were voting against the president's priorities, and in middle of July of '62. Uh, the president had put forward his Medicare program, which was his signature uh, piece of legislation. And the Senate voted it down, even though the Senate had a Democratic majority. So the president couldn't get his signature program through a Democrat majority Senate. It was a terrible blow for him. And the uh, and so he, he you know his his political uh, sensitivity was very very high, and he also knew because he's he was an accomplished politician that a first term president's first midterm elections usually go badly. Mm-hmm. At that stage, they almost always went badly. Mm-hmm. So uh, his midterm elections were a big deal for him. Yeah. So. Um... He's making a deal with Khrushchev saying, don't, don't cause any foreign tensions in Berlin until after November. At that time, go right ahead. <laughs> yeah, that, that was kind of <laughs> that's, that's sort of, that's sort of under, uh, understated. Um, and and uh, I'll stop the, the buzzing of your ships. It, at that time, they didn't have any idea that those ships going to Cuba were carrying military stuff. You, you, was, it, was it before or after they kind of had the idea that military equipment was coming to Cuba. They knew that, uh, the Americans knew that it, or, or were very confident it was military equipment, but they, mm. they, they definitely did not know that it might be ballistic missiles. Right. But that, right. that would have been uh, a, a shock in, in July. But the other thing to say quickly is it, it, it appears that Kennedy did not order the cessation of close-in surveillance of the cargo ships, even uh. though he told Bolshakov that he had. So that you know, he's doing some. He's playing some games here himself. He's he's testing it out, and the, uh, just one little funny uh, further thing here. I I told you that the message through Bolshakov was that that the president wanted Khrushchev to put Berlin tensions on ice. Mm-hmm. That was his words, and uh, Khrushchev put put the proposition to the Kremlin. The Kremlin approved of the deal, but they sent Bolshakov back to find out what the term on ice means. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that rich? That is good. We prove it, but we still want to know what the words mean, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think they probably had a, a decent idea about what he meant, but still. Yeah, yeah they wanted to nail it down. <laughs> um, it's interesting, throughout your book, you show how Kennedy felt about a lot of different issues and how he was able to, to see it from the other point of view. He said, well, of course, they're going to treat this once the, they knew that they had missiles. Of course, they're going to treat this as if um, it's fair because we have missiles in, in Turkey, so they get to have missiles in Cuba. And, and it really doesn't make any difference to us from a, from a threat point of view because they already have all these missiles in, in uh, Russia which can come and get us anyway. So why, why is there such a difference? But it seems to me that there was a difference, especially if they had a realistic idea about how many missiles there were. So was he overly sanguine about, about how little of a, a new threat this was? It was a threat, but it wasn't that much of an additional threat. Well, there's so many interesting aspects here, but let me focus on a couple of them. The first is that I, that, President Kennedy did not have a good relationship with either his Defense Department or the CIA at the time. And those were, of course, the two critical agencies who would have had the greatest knowledge and be doing the most thinking about what the level of the risk was. Uh, He didn't have confidence in either of them because he'd been burned in the Bay of Pigs crisis, Mm -hmm. and he did not forget that. One of the things about the Kennedys, both of them, (laughs) was that when they got burned by someone, they did not forget. And, you know, maybe often they did not forget. But in any event, so, mm. so the president was not 
looking to the CIA or the Defense Department to give him a lot of uh, high-level advice on these important issues. He was doing the thinking on his own with some uh, help from McGeorge Bundy and, and Robert McNamara and Bobby Kennedy. But it's remarkable how close a circle of actual advisors he had around him uh, to think about the level of risk. The other thing that's interesting is that on the first, we'll jump ahead to uh, after the missiles were discovered and mm -hmm. uh, uh, the president is talking to Bundy and uh, McNamara and the three of them, and it's on tape, you can, you can read it. They say, well, what do you think? Uh, are these missiles that the Russians have in Cuba, are they, are they a problem? And Bundy said, uh, uh, McNamara said, well, I asked the, uh, the Pentagon that, and they said, oh, yeah, they're a problem. But actually, I don't think they're a problem. Mm -hmm. And Bundy said, I agree with you. They're not a mm -hmm. problem. And, uh, and the president didn't speak as uh, explicitly as his two advisors, but he basically said the same thing. Mm -hmm. The reason was that, it, and it's, it's a little counterintuitive, the first reason is, we got so much more than they've got that these don't change the balance of power one little bit, these Russian missiles in Cuba. They mm. actually don't change balance of power. But counterintuitively, the president was also saying, I don't care about the balance of power because if the Russians have even one missile that they can land in the United States and blow up with a nuclear warhead, I don't want that to happen no matter what. I don't, mm. I don't care if we can beat the hell out of them after that. I don't want that to happen to begin with. So they've got enough to deter me, in effect, right now, even though I've got a tremendous advantage over them. So mm. what difference does a couple of little, you know, liquid-fueled missiles in Cuba add to the equation? Mm. Not much. That was the president's view. And, you know, you could say it's pretty... Uh, uh, you know, juvenile, or you can say it's actually really mature, mm -hmm. but it was his view, regardless of what the Pentagon or the CIA thought. Yeah, you, you make it perfectly clear in, in many different ways, um, and we'll, we'll get to that at the end, but the end of your book is just great, um, that, that he really didn't have, uh, did not want to fight anything like a nuclear war, would probably right. have done almost anything to avoid it, and the, the way they negotiated, just... <laughs> But the way that both sides negotiated was very interesting. A lot of deals uh, would close a lot sooner if everybody negotiated with these guys negotiated. That's that's for sure, because uh, they they instead of instead of holding back, they make offers that are more generous than the other side was expecting. Uh, you, you make a, a great case for that. Um, I was just thinking of something else, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure this is the best time for it, but it was also very stunning, uh, which was Bobby Kennedy complaining, and I don't remember whether he's complaining to a Russian or not, but complaining that. That Jack's Ken, uh, Jack's uh, enemies were so against him that that really needed to be you know neutralized to whatever extent possible, and you you sort of imply that it was um, you know either the Russians or the Republicans uh, who were the enemies. But I, I, I was wondering he was so adamant whether there was some other whether he knew something because it was only a year or so before the the uh, assassination whether there was pressure already on them. Um, from whatever whatever forces there were that were interested in taking him out, um, threatening him. Did, did you find anything like that? Well, the I, I no I no what, okay, the, oh, the the clarification or the, the my impression uh, pretty strong impression and there's there's support for this when when Bobby was uh, in, almost in a uh, a combination of panic and rage in mm -hmm. his conversation with Bolshakov as they left the White House following the meeting with, with the president, where he said the president's, he said the president's enemies could do anything, something like that. Right. Uh, he was talking about, I think, I think he was talking about the right-wing conservative Defense Department and its uh, coterie establishment who thought that the president was being soft 
mm-hmm. and who would be infuriated if they knew that the president was uh, not being tough enough, far less having deals, secret deals with uh, right. uh, Khrushchev. So I think he, was, he wasn't talking about dark forces somewhere else. He was just talking yeah. about this president has got a huge problem with uh, the Hawks. And the mm-hmm. Hawks, according to Bobby, mm-hmm. might do anything. Now, it, it's really a shocking thing for the attorney general to have been thinking or to have been saying, far less to have been saying to a GRU agent yeah. act, acting undercover in Washington to be delivered back to the premier of the Soviet Union. That's exactly what I was thinking. It's un- unbelievable to say it at all, but to say it to a Soviet uh, you know, operative is, is a, you know, really an interesting way to negotiate. Um, it's almost like saying, you know, we have hawks, in a way it might be clever. We have hawks that are so serious that we're trying to restrain them and you've got to cooperate so that we can restrain them. Otherwise, we'll have to unleash our, our power on you. Uh, maybe that was the subtext. But other than, other than that subtext, you can't understand why he would say something like that. Well, and he said it one more time uh, to Dobrynin yeah. at the uh, culmination of the missile crisis when he basically said, uh, and, and what he was basically saying was, the president may not be able to restrain these people, not that we're going to unleash them, but mm-hmm. that we may not have them under control. And Bobby said pretty much the same thing to Dobrynin on the night of October 27 to seal the deal. He said, we've got to do this fast because we may not be able to prevent our military from going forward with this invasion. Again, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it was not true. Right. And it was a rather uh, alarming thing to be to be saying. Now, sometimes you 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 use that in negotiating. You say, "Oh, I don't know, I don't know about be you know the good cop bad cop right. kind of a thing." Yeah. But I think this goes beyond good cop bad cop. Yeah, it sure sounded like it to me. Um, it sounded a little bit more like Doctor Strangelove. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's way way too way too close to to that movie uh, for comfort. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, so so let's uh, let's talk about the actual sort of 13 days now for a little bit and, and how they unfolded. Maybe you could just tell that story um, and, and how the negotiations went. Do we have an idea about how they negotiated? Um, you can either say that they are brilliant. The Kennedys were brilliant negotiators by really taking risks other negotiators never do or that they were very naive and it just worked out, you know, because it's kind of hard to tell. Well, uh, I th- I think they were not naive, and uh, uh, and and they were uh, they were shr- I, I say they it, it was the president it wasn't Bobby Bobby was carrying messages the president mm. was the one who was coming up with the with the plan. It was uh, interesting how you show that Bobby Kennedy was actually a, a quite hawkish at the beginning and I'm caught on tape that way not at all the way he presented himself in 13 days. He sort right, of he, he, he sort of traded roles with his brother in that book, uh, as, as you mentioned. But anyway, go ahead. Okay, Sam. Yeah, so, so uh, the president did two things that were uh, ultimately effective uh, and, and, and went hand in hand. The first is he, 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 uh, he did the quarantine, which was about the, the least aggressive measure that he could have used. And he did it intentionally to send a signal to Khrushchev, look, I don't want to fight. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna blow up your bases. I'm not gonna send in an invasion. I'm gonna put out a quarantine, and it's gonna give you plenty of time to think about what you want to do next. So that mm-hmm. that was smart. Simultaneously, he put the U.S. Strategic Air Command, our our strategic bombers, and our our missiles, on what was called DEFCON two the highest alert short of all-out war. Mm-hmm. That was a really, really aggressive, intimidating thing to do. And I go into what exactly that you know, meant. Well, yeah, why don't, you, why don't you go into that right now too? Because I think everyone, you know, all those levels mean one thing, but the way you describe what they actually did and what the Soviets saw happening is, is uh, really quite impressive. First of all, that there was no 
no mistake or no accident happened during that time because this was yeah. you know that nobody that nobody made any errors with so many sorties and everything so why don't you describe what what defcon 2 meant in 1962 what defcon 2 meant was that at all times 24/7 around the clock one eighth of all of the intercontinental striking forces that the United States possessed were in the air en route to the Soviet Union. They weren't just flying around over mm -hmm. Montana so that they wouldn't be caught sitting ducks on, on the tarmac. Mm -hmm. No, they were en route on three pre-programmed routes to targets in the Soviet Union with nuclear weapons on board, with targeting instructions. They were being refueled as necessary, and they were going to their, let's call it the fail-safe point. Mm -hmm. I was gonna say a great name for it. <laughs> the fail-safe point and, and where they would turn around unless they were ordered to continue. In one of the routes which went straight through the Mediterranean up the gut into uh, the Soviet Union, they turned around somewhere in the Eastern Mediterranean mm -hmm. and, and went home. But when, when that plane turned around and went home, it was, its place was taken by a follow-up plane following the same route. So there were these circuits of attacking bombers headed for the Soviet Union. And how many and bombers are involved? I'm sorry? How many bombers are involved? There's three different routes, and are, are there are there 20 bombers up, or are there 100 bombers up at a time? Or uh, I, I I don't have that number. It was one eighth of our uh, of our uh, strategic air force. They're okay. B-52s. But it wasn't just one or two planes up in the air. No, no, the no, 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 no. It, it was, was a big fleet. Yeah, yeah. It was a big fleet, and as you you know, said, something like you... there was 8,000 uh, sorties or whatever uh, some, and, during and, that time. And, uh, yes, and I. Uh, and uh, and air refuelings, and as you mm. pointed out, it is It was an absolutely remarkably uh, effective and and carefully managed operation. That there were no crashes, there were no mm. uh, flights beyond the fail-safe point. There were no major mistakes made. It's just absolutely remarkable. You you mentioned and this is just an aside, but you mentioned that in 1966 there was a a, a, a crash. Uh, yeah, uh, off, the, uh, is off Spain. over Spain and yeah. with nuclear weapons involved. So yeah, yeah. So I mean, things could happen. And, yeah. and you know, they, they, I'll just make a, a little footnote. I uh, I recognize when I say that there was no or or very little actual risk of a nuclear war breaking out. I recognize that accidents can happen, that that misfortune occurs that even though the president and the premier were in very, very tight control of their respective military forces, that doesn't rule out the possibility of, of accidents. But I take that on and I discuss that subject at length yeah. in the book as well. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great amount of detail in the book about that and, and the things that did happen but didn't go anywhere. You know. Yes, right. So all, all but, but, that, but that I'll just add, because uh, you asked, you know, so what was the pre president's uh, method of negotiating? And you've already touched on it. Uh, both he and Khrushchev were so anxious to get this behind them and get it behind them quickly that they each made an opening offer that was more generous mm -hmm. than the opening offer being made by their adversary which is, you know, to any negotiator, that never happens. No. So the president's opening offer, which he put secretly through the Bolshikov channel to, mm -hmm. to Khrushchev was, tell you what, we'll trade our missiles. You take yours out of Cuba, we'll take ours out of Turkey. Mm -hmm. Khrushchev's opening offer was, just pledge that you won't invade Cuba and we'll take the missiles out. That was his mm -hmm. opening offer. When when right. Kennedy and, and the XCOM heard that opening offer, they said, okay, folks, we can go to bed early tonight for the first time in 12 days because right. <laughs> that's their opening offer. <laughs> <laughs> Deal is done. This isn't going to yeah. be as hard as we thought, right? So, so, I mean, that was good. It was good that both sides were being incredibly mm -hmm. generous to get this thing over with. 
And it's interesting that the, Tur uh, the missiles that we had in Turkey were obsolete and we wanted to get rid of them anyway. But what was more interesting about that was the fact that Kennedy told the Russians that they're obsolete, you know, when he said that, <laughs> when he said that they were gonna take them out, it, it kind of undercuts part of your, your, your offer. I mean, the visual and politicalness of it is, is, is all very clear. But well, the, I, I, the physical I, fact is not. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, the president told the Russians that these were obsolete missiles, but oh. but both sides knew that liquid-fueled missiles were obsolete, dangerous, exposed mm -hmm. above ground. They weren't hardened in hardened sites. They were history. Yeah. Uh, so they were dispensable. We, uh, the United States already had the solid state technology, uh, but yes. uh, the Soviets were still developing it. Is that what the way the state was at the time? Or? We, were, we were ahead. Uh, we were putting the solid state technology into Minutemen missiles, and we had some in place in Montana by then. The Soviets were way behind, mm -hmm. years so behind they, on that. Yeah. So they did not have the kind of missiles they would if, if they were going to uh, fire anything at us. It would it would take a couple of hours or so to get the whole thing all set up. And the reason that they are obsolete, you said, it was because liquid fuel is so uh, uh, volatile that it could explode on. If it, it couldn't just sit in the missiles waiting to go, they had to right. they had to load it on at the at the last minute in order to make it work. They had to load it on, and then they had to empty the missile if it had been in there for thirty or forty hours. Uh, because of the danger of the volatile fuel. So okay. it, it was a really not a workable system for uh, quick decision-making in a volatile situation. It's kind of strange to be nostalgic for liquid fuel uh, missiles. <laughs> <laughs> when, when we at least had a couple of hours of notice, uh, basically, if they started moving. So uh, back to the story. So... Uh, we're 12 days in, maybe, or you're, you're, you're about that, or the, the, the uh, group of people who were deciding, and you said it was a relatively small group of people, right? Like, who, who was involved? Because a lot of people know the names. Who was well, in on the team that was listening to this? I, I just think the, you know, it's interesting. It, it, we've got the tapes of the XCOM deliberations where, where you know, the, the, these bright, very knowledgeable, highly experienced experts were sitting around the table. That's what most people think about, especially after reading 13 Days, that as if they were the deciders. Yeah. In fact, if you read the tapes, you see the president again and again during those 13 days bringing up this idea, hey, you know what, we're going to have to trade our missiles in Italy, I mm -hmm. mean in Turkey, and ultimately in Italy for to get the, the, the Soviets to take theirs out of Cuba. That's the only way we're going to be able to settle this. It was almost like no one was listening. Mm -hmm. it's, it's absolutely amazing. Each time the president would say that, the subject would, be, would move off on to, in some different direction. Mm -hmm. He never put that issue to a vote. He never got a consensus from the XCOM. They were kind of thinking about, well, when, when's the invasion going to occur? How many, how many air sorties are we going to need? What's, what's going to happen? And so the president was sort of operating in his own, uh, in his in his own little space, so to speak. Mm. And when yeah. it came to the last night, which was the 27th, the Saturday night, when the president and Bobby and Bundy and McNamara went off into another room and Bobby was uh, dispatched to go and make the deal to Dobrynin, the Soviet ambassador, it was that small group who knew what the deal was going to be. Mm -hmm. And the XCOM, the, the rest of that crowd, very bright people, but they were on a different page and mm -hmm. they weren't told. They weren't involved. It, you also say that uh, Kennedy had a backup plan in case that didn't work, which was actually to trade Berlin. Um, and he, he said, you know, the, the deliberations were, what do I do? Do I, do I abandon 2.5 uh, million Berliners or do I face nuclear war? Well, there were two backup plans. One is fairly well known, which was the Cordier option, where uh, uh, Kennedy believed that if he couldn't persuade Khrushchev to accept the missile trade, the Turkey missile trade, he would, through an intermediary, get the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, Utant, mm -hmm. to propose 
a missile trade mm-hmm. and that that would put pressure on Khrushchev and I, uh, you know, public pressure. And then, you know, that would right. do the deal. But if that didn't work, mm-hmm. Kennedy had a, a third option. And this is, uh, I, I think this is a, a, a new contribution I make to the, uh, to mm-hmm. the literature. And he tested this out on, uh, on uh, Harold Macmillan, the uh, British Prime Minister and the British Ambassador to the US, uh, uh, David Ormsby Gore, who was a close friend of Kennedy's and with with the XCOM even. His third fallback option was, and it's a little hard to just say this and and have you believe it, but it Mm was, look, uh, we may have to invade Cuba at the end of the day, but we don't want there to be any real fireworks, nuclear weapons, fighting with the Russians. So how could, how could that work? Mm-hmm. He said, I'll tell you what, anything we do in Cuba, the Russians are probably going to do something to Berlin. So why don't we just let them, quote, grab, close quote, Berlin? Mm-hmm. If we let them grab Berlin, then we invade Cuba. And it's like, it's a deal. Yeah. Each of us gets what he wants. Each of us loses his most exposed possession, the possession that's hardest to defend. We can't mm-hmm. defend Berlin against the Red Army, and mm-hmm. Khrushchev can't defend Cuba against the United States military. Yeah. So what if, and and he said, this is the question I want you all to think about. What if we let him grab Berlin, we invade, and the problem is solved? Yeah. Uh, Very uh, interesting, you know, issues to to, to have to deal with. Well, we have a question that's come in. Um, This is from uh, Landsman, John Landsman, and it is, uh, he read that, Abram Chayez, uh, someone at the State Department, was involved in the idea to, to do the quarantine, that he was part of that. Is, do you have any information on that? I know you mentioned Chayez once in your book. so Yeah, Abe Chayez uh, was Chayes, yeah. a kind of, he was a lawyer and a legal advisor. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't really add much to this. There's been a lot, you know, a fair amount written about it, but uh, Chayez did offer legal opinions mm-hmm. about... Uh, the meaning under international law of blockade and quarantine, mm-hmm. very technical issues. And I think the essence of it was, can we put in a quarantine without violating international law norms and without it being an act of war? Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's where Chase came in with a legal opinion. Great. Nice detailed answer. Okay. So, um, there's uh, one more question, and this one's from uh, seven, uh, uh, Sean Johnson, sorry, uh, Sean Johnson. And it is uh, about Kennedy's last night of the 13 days. I don't know if we want to go into that or not. <laughs> 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 it has to do with the White House intern. Not, no, not a White House intern, a State Department intern, right? Okay. I. No, it, it 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 was neither. It was just a girlfriend. Oh, okay. I, I I'll just I, I mean a number of people have uh, have have commented on this, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> and it's it's just a very odd, strange situation. But it happened, and the uh, the woman in question just wrote her, her memoirs about three years ago, in which this little tidbit. Yeah. I was uh, disclosed. So uh, on the the last night of the of the crisis, which was October 27, uh, the president did have his girlfriend with him at the White House. Mm-hmm. There was no um, there was no uh, romance in that not particular night. But mm-hmm. uh, the girlfriend remembered the president coming back from taking a phone call and saying to her uh, as he joined her, uh, I would rather my children be 
red than dead. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, in those days, uh, it was kind of a war cry in the United States. Uh, we'd rather be dead than red. You know, right. we're going to fight until, you know, freedom is secured or we're put in our grave. So red than dead. So the president turned that and said, I'd rather my children be red than dead. She, the girlfriend said in her memoir, he was perfectly serious and uh, troubled and burdened. And it wasn't a joke. It wasn't a quip. No. It wasn't a confession of, of, uh, of cowardice. It was a real statement by someone who was thinking about his children and saying, I am not going to allow a war to happen, period. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, I'm not going to fight with the Russians over this. I'm not going to have a nuclear war. Um, just for those who aren't aware, um, uh, the Kennedy children at the time were like four and two or three and one, or they were very little, very young children. So uh, that's that part of uh, the tenderness of, of uh, Jack's uh, statement as well. It was a real human statement, and that's, you know, it, it, it was what it was. Yeah. So uh, we have just a couple of minutes left, and uh, you have a great postscript uh, of what happens afterwards. Um, and, and, and you say how the different main characters basically covered their tracks yeah. uh, of, of what was involved. So why don't you just give, because the names are familiar to people who, who were paying any attention at the time. Or maybe tell a little bit about it. And t- maybe tell Charles Bartlett's story just a little bit, too, because he played a big role and was a friend of the president's. Okay, so uh, almost immediately after the uh, the settlement was reached and the world breathed a huge sigh of relief, uh, an issue arose uh, of whether there had been a secret part of the deal mm. and whether that secret part of the deal was an American uh, agreement to remove our missiles from Turkey in exchange for the Soviet missiles leaving Cuba. And uh, of course, that was the part of the deal that Bobby Kennedy told the Russian ambassador had to be kept secret, absolutely could not be revealed because of the politics in the United States of that very sensitive subject. So there were congressional hearings that were held within months after uh, the end of the crisis where the Republican uh, uh, senators and congressmen were asking about whether there was a side deal. And uh, the, the, you know, McNamara and others who were aware of the side deal absolutely denied that there was any side deal, which was not true. In other words, they just absolutely covered it. Uh, and in my postscript, I I uh, I document that secret that was kept from Congress, even with mm-hmm. uh, high-level officials. I think testifying under oath. The most I uh, I think uh, awful aspect of the cover-up, though, was Charles Bartlett, mm-hmm. because he and I. Uh, and a co-author wrote the uh, sort of the official first story about what happened during the 13 days, and it appeared in the mass media in uh, December of '62. And and of course, it 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 made uh, the president look like a you know a hero and a, a strong guy who had mm-hmm. sort of shaken the not shaken but had stood the stood his ground and went eyeball to eyeball with the Russians and and won. And Stirred but not in, shaken, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in this uh, recounting of the uh, the way the deal was done, uh, Charlie Bartlett, who's who was a journalist and a very close personal friend of the president, wrote that one person in the president's circle of advisors, uh, Adlai Stevenson, uh, the UN ambassador had tried to persuade the president to, uh, in effect, appease 
the Russians by giving up our missiles. Mm-hmm. And that the president had rejected that idea completely because he wanted to, you know, he, he thought the better deal was to stand his ground and be tough. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Adlai Stevenson was characterized in this uh, article as an appeaser, as wanting to do the Munich, you know, mm-hmm. with a nod back to uh, to England and, and Hitler. And the thing that's just so awful about Bartlett being the author of this, co-author of this story, was that it was Bartlett who the president had delegated to take the first proposal of the missile trade deal to mm-hmm. Georgi Bolshakov to send back to, to Khrushchev. In other words, the missile trade deal had been the president's idea from day one, and he had deputized Bartlett to get the Russians to understand that how generous we were going to be. And for Bartlett to then write a completely uh, untruthful calumny mm-hmm. against poor Adlai Stevenson, yeah. to me, was just dreadful. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, our UN ambassadors uh, down through history have been uh, given tasks that turned out to be uh, very Tough. similar. Maybe, maybe the UN ambassador should always uh, read these stories before they take the job. But I mean, Adlai Stevenson, for those who, who aren't aware, was was uh, the top presidential contender for the Democrats two two times in a row against Eisenhower, and Kennedy almost had been his his vice presidential pick in 1956, uh, but there was bad blood between them, and so it, it's like I have an opportunity. Let's stick it on him, you know. Even though he admired the, the the technique of negotiating that that, that it solved the deal. Um, he still thought it looked bad and, and, and could put it off on somebody else. Very it interesting. It was a real low point. Really, really interesting. So uh, thank you so much, first of all. And there's lots more details in the book uh, for those of you who are listening. Um, uh, so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us. Come back and see us again soon. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.